invite you to open up to, to Genesis chapter 20 as we continue on in our series through the book of Genesis. Um, it's just really good. It's good to know that every page, every single page was written as a letter of revelation. Every single page, even the, even the ones with just the lineages of names and names, they're talking to us. They're trying to reveal God's heart. He wants to be known, not just known in our head, but in our heart. He wants not just information, but revelation to, to pour through us, and this is who he is. And so um, we're making our way, and um, you know, Genesis is a book about faith. You know? It's a book about a guy uh, who is nobody from nowhere in a place called Ur. He's a pagan moon-worshiping God or worshiping guy, and he gets called to go to a land that he doesn't know where he's going, and he starts at a place with no faith, and he uh, turns out to be what the Bible calls a friend of God. And so I wonder if there's faith in you. Um, I sense faith in the room. Faith just means a yes to him. It doesn't mean we have the answers. It doesn't mean we have all the arguments. It just means that we trust. You trust him? Do you trust that his promises are true? Do you trust that what he says is true yesterday, today, and tomorrow. This is what he's doing in us. It's kind of like an old blockbuster where the, the sun beats down on those front videos that are on the front aisle there. And, and after years and years, just that consistent, continual covenant love that just beats down on our heart begins to change us and to transform us. And so the deal is, is that in all times, 2020 or any different time, all generations are crying out for redemption in this world, for, for healing in this world. Our world needs healing and brokenness so much. And, and what God does through Abraham and ultimately through covenant families like ours, is he doesn't just change our world, he changes us. He transforms us from the inside out. And that, that is exactly what's happening in the story of Abraham. Today, though, is not a story about faith so much as it is about failure. And, um, and I don't know if you guys have um, stories in your, in your family, you know, the stories that your dad tells like over and over and over and over again, like you've heard them like 45 times. And... Um, and, and, and your dad will say, like, hey, have I ever told you the story about Uncle so-and-so? And you'll be like, yeah, Dad, I heard it. It's like, well, so anyway, so me and Uncle so-and-so, we're on, you know, like, I'm, I'm a dad of four. I have, like, four dad points, I think. I'm, that's further along than, than a lot. I mean, I've been a dad for, for 14 years now, so, you know, I'm getting up in my dad points. I don't wear fanny packs yet, and um, I still don't ask, I don't ask my kids how to rewind things on the DVD player and things like that. But I'm, I'm getting there, and I want to be at the place where I just tell, start telling my kids a story, and they tell me that they don't want to hear it, and I'm just like, anyway. So I was on Woodruff Road the other day and just start plowing through some story because when dads are telling stories, it's not time to talk. It's time to just let them finish, like maybe because we don't want to, like, make it take longer than it needs to, uh, but maybe also because there's something sacred going on when dads are telling stories. Good dads tell good stories, and I want to tell better stories. Uh, if you're a dad and you don't know what to do and you're supposed to be a leader in your home, maybe the first part to start is just to tell stories, to tell stories of God's faithfulness and tell stories about who God is. That's one of our major roles. And so maybe we just let dads finish, you know? My dad used to tell a story about my grandpa who sold his watch and turned it into 27 watch stores, and he would just tell it. I've heard it 100 times, and I've probably told it to you 14 times too if you've been here for long enough. Um, because dads are not just telling history, they're telling heritage. They're installing they're instilling identity. If we don't have stories, we don't know who we are. We don't know where we come from. And so dads, if they're doing their job right, are telling you boring stories. And they're not stopping even if you ask them to stop because dads are installing heritage. And uh, we do this in American history class too. I used to be a U.S. history teacher. And we're not just teaching history. We're teaching heritage. Like I don't know if Paul Revere really had two lights. That's not the point. The point is, is that Americans are made for, out, of, out of the fabric of bravery, out of the fabric of risk. Like, that's the story. You know, George Washington probably didn't really chop down a cherry tree, but we tell our kids that over and over and over and over again. And when 9-11 hits, we put up posts on Facebook. Do you remember? Do you remember where you were at 9 a.m.? Do you remember where you were at 10.30 a.m.? Because we need to remember. We need to remember not just the history and the heritage, but the heritage. 
The statue's getting torn down is tough. Because what it's saying is that America no longer believes in the common heritage anymore. We've all been brought up on different stories and, and different politicians and leaders have been, have been undermined, largely because of technology and television. We don't talk about George Washington the same way as we'll talk about Barack Obama. Like it just, we won't be united in that way again. And so usually our American heritage is more around Michael Jordan and Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and Disney princesses, really, is where our heritage is coming from. I don't know what you think about that, but that's the truth. That's where, that's where we're headed. One of the things that makes me believe in the Bible is that the Bible is a book about heritage. When the Jews would sit down and speak in the living room, they would talk about Moses. They wouldn't talk about Michael Jordan. They were talking about David. And they would talk about David over and over and over again. They would talk about him in the field, and he'd talk about, you know, um, the Philistine army, and they would talk about Bathsheba, and they would just tell these stories over and over again. And one of the things that is distinct about the Bible, though separate from American history or American heritage or George Wong history, is that the Bible is not just presenting the greatness of the heroes that's in its pages. It's presenting the failures. One of the things that is subversive about the Bible when it comes to the category of literature that it is, is that it's not presenting heritage of greatness. It's presenting a heritage of grace. And it's not hiding. It is absolutely putting in plain sight the vices and the failures and the brokenness of all of its heroes. What other book in history, what other book in religion puts forward forth its failures rather than its greatness within its heroes. I mean, that makes no sense. Imagine if you were to open up an American history book and you were to find out that um, George Washington had, like, incest in his family. Like, what would that do to American history if we just opened up the book and Martin Luther King Jr., like, we figured out on one page, like, actually killed a man in his pursuit of justice the way that Moses killed a man? Like, how would that affect the fabric of American identity? This is how bold the Bible is. It's not putting forward stories of greatness. It's putting forward stories of failure and grace within that. So this is what we need to remember as we read the story today and stories like it, is that the heritage of the Bible is not trying to hand down a heritage of greatness, but rather a heritage of grace. If you are having the time of your life and everything's on cloud nine and you got your job right and you've got your emotions right and you're not depressed and you're not anxious and you pick up the Bible, the Bible probably can't do its greatest work that it des- desires to do in you because it's, it's not meant to necessarily just meet you in your greatness. greatness. It's meant to meet you in your, in your weakness. It's meant to meet you in your weakness in your, in, in, and meet you with grace. And so be very careful of preachers and books and thoughts that are in your head that say how to become invincible in Jesus and how to become a great man or woman of God and how to become a person of faith and how to become a person of prayer because the Bible's not written for great people. It's for people that are weak that are meeting grace. That's what this Bible has come to meet you with. And if that's where you are, you're in good place and in good hands, and you'll come upon your own failures and your own shortcomings and think, this is what I have in common with Abraham. This is what I have in common with Joseph. This is what I have in common with Paul. This is what I have in, in common with Peter. It's not great people. It's, it's weak people that have met grace. Are you meeting grace? Are you being infiltrated by grace? And day by day, are you being transformed by grace? This is what our Bible is doing. Chapter 20, verse 1 says this. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. Verse 2, and, then, and there Abraham said to his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Not a good scene for Abraham. He is a wanderer, a, a sojourner. He was called to go from the land that he lived to go to the land that he didn't know of. And that made him... A sojourner. That made him an itinerant preacher. That made him somebody that moved around a lot and didn't stay still, which, made, which meant that he had to go to places 
that were uncomfortable and foreign to him. And so he's found himself, uh, the words in the, in the geography there, in Philistine territory, uh, otherwise known as uh, the mean and hairy uh, land of the giants is where Abraham has found himself. And so what he's done is, like he did in Genesis chapter 12 with the Egyptians, is he's pawned his wife Sarah off as his sister because his sister is very beautiful. And it was very normative for um, a king or an empire or a powerful force to find all the most beautiful people, beautiful women in the land and to take those women and put them in a harem and basically uh, for the, the pleasure and delight of the king kind of hold these women and then oftentimes kill the husband. So it's not out of the ordinary for Abraham to do such a thing. So he's given uh, his wife up, said it's his sister and Abimelech, which is a title for a king in the Philistine land at that time, took her. And so uh, I think a passage like this needs to remind us as, as Americans, um, if you, you know, you are, I, I think you're American. If you're not American, I don't know, maybe you're not an American citizen. But here we stand in America in Greenville, South Carolina today in 2020, and we're gathering in church, you know, under the First Amendment. Um, we live in a, you know, we live in extremely rare time and place in history. Like the ability for us that faith, following faith and following Jesus has meant guidance towards safety rather than jeopardy is a very unique time in history. No other time in history have, have we, you know, as the body of believers, the body of Christ, been able to gather. Um, oftentimes following Jesus means you can put it on your resume. It means you can like get into jobs. It means that you can get access into places. It means you can socially network. It's a place that you can gather freely and it looks good on your social networking pages. This is a very unique time in history. And so I don't know if you, um, you know, sometimes we're the documentary age and we watch all these documentaries on Netflix. If you've got time, and it is COVID, you could watch this documentary called Sheep Among Wolves of the fastest growing church in the world right now in um, Iran. You know, Christmas and Easter Christianity is going downwards. Like the attendance on Christmas is Easter is going downwards. But the resistance Christianity is increasing by, by exponential rates. And that's, that's the hope. That's the host of the gospel. There's a revival. Well, there has been a revival in China. And currently, there is a revival going in Iran. And they're not worried about, are we wearing masks or not? The question that they'll pro- propose at the beginning of that documentary, which is not for the faint of heart, is when these uh, persecuting um, you know, Iranian officials come in and they rape the women within the church, what are we going to do then? So we live in a very unique time, which speaks to us this, is that the faith, the faith that is in you and I And maybe it's not today and maybe it's not tomorrow, but the faith that we have in our heart, the spirit that's living inside of us, that has not given us to a spirit of fear, that is bold like a lion, that has come to overcome the world. Our faith was designed not for safety, but for jeopardy. It's designed to go into dark places. It's designed to go into risk. It's designed to be a minority in an exile uh, in a foreign land. This, our faith, historically, has, has the majority of, of, of the time and lion's share of, of the existence of the church within the Holy Spirit has been in the place of jeopardy, not in the place of safety. Has been in the place of risk. What about your faith? Does your faith lead you towards safety or risk? Do you find that your faith is leading you towards uh, place, places where you're the majority, where people, you know, think and act like you and talk like you and promote the gifts that you have? Or does your faith lead, you know, lead you towards places of minority, to the place of jeopardy, to the place of risk? I think in general, the whole idea of the attractional model of church kind of undermines what I think you see in the pages of the Old Testament, which is it sort of it insists that if ministry is done, it's done where the majority of the people in the room have faith. Versus most of the faith stories that we see in both the Old and New Testament are places where the, those that carry faith are the salt of the earth going into a place of majority unbelief, of a majority pagan society. What do you think about that? And what is your faith doing? Is it leading you towards safety or towards, um, towards risk? So here's Abraham, right? 
And we're upset at him because he pawned his wife off. And you know, maybe if you're a wife today, you're like nudging your husband, like you would do that, wouldn't you? You would just go into North Korea and just send me off to King Jamul or whatever. You know, you would just send me off to the dictator. You'd be so upset. Um, and Abraham does, you know, deserve a bad racket, I suppose. But he is in a place where God has, is making no apologies about putting him in a place where his faith is risked. His faith, faith is being tested. And this is the passage that we're to remember from Genesis 15, 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham, for I am your shield, your very great reward. Ultimately, Abraham has, has jeopardized the promise. He has jeopardized his wife, and he's jeopardized himself. But ultimately, the greatest offense is that he has failed to believe the promises of God. That God is, and is Abraham's and is our shield and great strength. So here he goes. He goes into this place, and verse 3 said, But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead. That sounds like a good Liam Neeson movie, doesn't it? You're as good as dead. I mean, you just, God is just letting this guy have it, you know? He tells Abimelech in his sleep, You are as good as dead because the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. So this is a, a, a ruse. This is an event that took place in Genesis 12. Uh, again, this is a repeat episode of what Abraham has continually done is he's given his wife um, away here, and, um, and God has responded um, very abruptly here in this passage because, because it's not just the safety of Abraham and Sarah, but it's the safety of the promise. It's the safety of Isaac. If Sarah stays more than one night in this harem, we're not sure who Jesus' lineage is. If Sarah stays one night, we're not sure who Isaac's dad is, and therefore we don't know who Jacob's dad is, and therefore we don't know the whole lineage, and the whole promise from the beginning of Genesis 3.15 is from the seed of the woman. We are to be able to trace from Eve to Jesus that God's promise is faithful. So God has, uh, has intervened in Abraham's failure. Abraham has put just not only his life, but the entire promise of God in jeopardy. Uh, by, by sending his wife off. So verse 4, it says, Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She is my sister, and didn't she also say, He is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. There's a, a rule in the Bible that's called uh, the, the law of first appearance. We're supposed to pay attention to when words first appear. And this is the first appearance of the word integrity. Integrity. So the phrase here is with clean conscience and clean hands. That is a biblical word which means integrity. It's the same word that we would use today. It means let your yes be yes and let your no be no. It means say what you do and do what you say. It means do and be the same person in front of that audience as you would in front of that audience. This is the word integrity. And the irony is that the first use of the word integrity is not about the friend of God, but about the enemy of God. Uh, it's like a burn, dude. This is not good. So at face value, you're like, yeah, dude, go be Liam Neeson and just take this guy out. He got in the way of the promise. He took Sarah away. This guy should be in trouble. But we remember that these passages are not really ever about the third person and the third party. It's never really about the enemy of God or the Philistines. Those things are all arbitrary. Those titles are just names on the page. What we're always focused on is Abraham and, and his propensity to trust or mistrust the promise. And Abraham is not trusting the promise. So God's coming in, and he is speaking directly to the enemy of God. This is not a good sign. I used to be a waiter, and, um, you know, the waiter, there's a, there's a phrase. It's called getting in the weeds. You do not want to be in the weeds. That means you're four iced teas behind. That guy's really mad at you. That guy's really, really mad at you. And that guy's wife is really, 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 really mad at you because you haven't been over the table in, like, five days or whatever. And so... 
what you want as a waiter is be able to like clean up your mess. Sometimes if you mess something up and you earn the trust back, you might still be able to get a tip. Uh, this is not one of those situations. God is the manager. He's having to go directly to the table and clean up Abraham's mess. He is not going through Abraham. He's going around Abraham, and he's speaking directly to this king. And if you think about this, God has been sparse in his speaking. He only speaks to Abraham every other chapter. He spoke to Sarah maybe once. He hasn't even spoke to Lot directly. God has been fairly uh, mute verbally up until this point, and now he's speaking. This is what's going on. If you're a Jewish kid and you're listening to your dad tell the story, not of George Washington, but of Abraham, you're going, dude, this guy, I cannot believe how bad he's screwing up. He is supposed to be a prophet of God and a friend of God, and the enemy of God is hearing and fearing God more than Abraham himself. The first word, the first use of the word integrity is used for somebody that doesn't even know the Lord. So then God affirms it in verse 6. He says, in the dream... Yes, I know you did this with integrity. I know you have integrity, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Oh, man. Like the first use of the word prophet, like he's calling Abraham a prophet at like his least prophetic moment. Dang, like at least when God called me a prophet, I wish I was doing something helpful and not like pawning my wife off. So we're strike two now. So God's at the table, he's dealing with the enemy instead of the friend, and he's calling this guy who is a uncircumcised, Philistine, hairy, scary, giant guy who God is, is trying to remove from the land, and he's going to talk to him instead of Abraham. And he's calling the enemy of God somebody with integrity, and he's telling the enemy of God, the outsider, is actually somebody that can hear the voice of God better than the prophet God himself. You see the irony, you see the, the juxtaposition, it's not a good thing. The enemy of God is hearing and fearing God more than the friend of God. This is actually a common thing that uh, the Bible does um, to its readers and that life will do to us if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Matthew, uh, I think it's 8, verse 10, Jesus um, performs one of his first miracles, first healings um, in Israel. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following them, truly I tell you, um, there is no one in Israel, and he's speaking about the centurion officer that he heals at the very beginning of his ministry. There is no one in Israel with such great faith. What a smack. <laughs> what an indictment. He's come to Israel. The centurion says, I'm in the military. I have bosses. I know what it's like to have authority. I know what it's like to, to be under authority. And I can tell you are the king of Israel. And I know that you have authority. And so if you have authority, you have authority over my body, my, my illness, my disease. And so I trust you and I submit to you. Jesus looks at this guy and says, I've been hanging out with these Israelites who've been reading the Torah day after day after day, telling their children's children's children, writing it on their foreheads, writing it on signs above their, their walls and, and little cross stitches on their pillows, and they still have no eyes to see. But yet this centurion, this enemy of God, this outsider, this Gentile has more faith than you. This is a very common thing that can happen in the Bible and in life. I say to you that uh, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom of heaven will be thrown outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You've met people, haven't you, that are non-Christian and they're actually kinder than Christians? That's awful, isn't it? It's awful. Like you, you, you can see people responding in the COVID crisis and in the social justice initiative and you can see people caring for people on the street, teachers, you know, in schools that don't know Jesus but smell and look 
like his character more than Christians do, and it's, it's unnerving. It should break our hearts. And he does this. He, he does this to us continually. He, he says to us, you know, like if we have eyes to see, like you see that athlete gets up every day at six because they want to be a championship runner. But like we have no devotion or discipline to like run with God. Like that's the conviction moment, right? You see like these religions from all over the world and they are serious about prayer. Like they, they, they fear their God. And we would say that that God has no eyes or ears and doesn't exist. But we don't have an ounce of fear for the one true living God. Like, we, our prayer life is just like, it's, la, it's anemic. And this is what God will do to us, is he will put somebody who should have no fear for God in front of us because the insiders grow in entitlement and the belief that their insiderness makes them insider and they forget how the outsider has been made an insider. So he'll put the outsider in front of the insider just to show the insider what they forgot, where they came from what they're called to do. We're called to lead not to follow in creativity, lead not to follow in charity, lead not to follow in diligence, lead not to follow in labor and perseverance and endurance. If there are people that fear a fake God, how much more should we fear the one true living God? This needs to, this needs to rattle us. This needs to anger us. This needs to, to see the failure of Abraham, not just as a picture, as a mirror, to recognize, like, man, may the enemies of God not fear God more than the friends of God. May the enemies of God not prophesy more accurately than the friends of God. May our friendship have something to show for it. May it actually have grit and endurance and, 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 and labor. You know, like may it have a sense of devotion to it. And so this is the wake-up call. It's not saying anyone's saved or unsaved. It's just saying like, like, like you, are not making yourself, um, you are not making yourself the substance of who I'm creating you to be. It's me that's doing it. It's me that's, that's creating it. I remember my dad, uh, one of the best lessons that I remember him teaching me as a kid, um, he had me come out to this like master's level like debate class. And I just like to argue, you know, like I don't, I probably should have, I didn't study or do anything, but I was like 16. So I'll go to this like master's class with my dad and like do this debate thing. And I remember I got like with my little group and they're like, oh, it's the professor's kid. He probably has something to say. And so I like organized our whole little like, you know, argument and I stood up and gave it. And my dad was like, that argument's terrible. Sit down, like in front of everybody. And there was something so good about my dad, like whether it was karate class or professor class, like he didn't want my, my insiderness to become an entitlement. And he didn't want me to think that just because he favored me that he played favorites. God favors us in grace, but he doesn't play favorites. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't play favorites. He, like if it's justice outside the church or inside the church, he's not changing the dictionary just to appease us. Like justice is justice, love is love, charity is a charity, pride is pride, humility is humility. It doesn't really matter where it is. He's calling integrity what it is. And if the church has no integrity, it will, it will, it will show a stark contrast, and it will be an abomination, honestly, to, to the cross, to what the gospel is doing, because may, may the friends of God show more integrity than the people that are far from him. This, is, I think, is what the scripture would, would say to us if we had ears to hear it. So we're having a direct conflict and understanding the friends of God or the, the friend of God here in failure, and this story is not taking a little detour. I mean, it's the whole destination. It's not just a pit stop. He's not hearing God. He's not following God. He's not prophesying. Um, he, is not, he is not holding integrity, and he's put the promise in jeopardy. And so verse 8 says this, Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all of his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Verse 9, when Abimelech called Abraham in and said, what have you done to us? And for the Bible reader, man, this is just another hit in the gut. This is maybe strike three. 
Like in Genesis 3, when Adam eats, you know, the fruit, the question, the perennial question of God towards man when he's messing up is like, what are you doing, dude? Like, what are you doing? Where is, where is your wife? Like, wh- what have you done? That's the question. When Cain kills Abel, what have you done? You know, when, when Noah wakes up and he realizes what happens in his tent, he says just like, what's going on? So the common theme music in like a musical, right? There's like theme music that reminds you of like something that has a thread. The theme music here of what are you doing is God's word towards man. But now, not only is Abraham getting rebuked by God, he's getting rebuked by a foreign emissary like through, like God threw that guy to him. Like it's just not a good day for Abraham. Not good. What have you done to us? God uses this guy as a mouthpiece. How have I wronged you that you brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never have done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? And so um, there, are, there are three uh, answers to this question that I want to just pick apart from verses 11 until the end of the story. But um, I want to focus on a list, which is three ways to lose integrity with, to lose integrity with God and man. Three ways to lose, lose integrity and intimacy <clears throat> with God and man. And the number one way if the church is meant to be salt and, earth, salt and light in the earth, if the church is meant to do what it says and says what it, it does, if the church is meant to, to uh, be what it talks about, if it's meant to be the same in and out of season and in and out of different audiences, then there's three ways to not do that that Abraham is about to show us. The question is, is laid out. The gauntlet is laid out. The guy and God is asking him, what have you done? And so Abraham begins to speak, opens up his heart, and shows us a map of the way not to go. This is a cautionary tale. We are not doing what he's about to say. Number one, verse 11, Abraham replies, so I said to myself, (laughs) which is don't start the conversation off with just myself. Like he's clearly not talking to God. So he's just like, oh, I said to myself, I was considering. He says, there is surely no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. The number one thing, the very first thing, if you want to walk out of this room and start losing integrity immediately is fearing man. The beginning of all lost integrity begins with the fear of man. It begins with the belief that that guy holds my job, that guy holds my reputation, that guy can take my kids away from me, that person can ruin my life. The minute you believe that, you have just inherited a lack of integrity. You have divided your heart. And so uh, the, the Bible is wanting us to know, this is what Psalm 86, 11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. And this is what it says, helping us give a little understanding of what God means by integrity. It doesn't mean not cheat on your taxes. It means by abide, by every promise and word that comes from God. This is the prayer of the psalmist and hopefully the prayer of our heart. Lord, give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. This is the principal ingredient of what integrity means. It means to fear God and nothing else. A divided heart is when when my heart is yielded to different kings and different kingdoms other than God. And the opposite of integrity is not just moral and ethical failure, it's disintegration of the heart. It's me being uh, led and lorded over by this person when I'm in their you know, presence, and then led and lorded over by this person when I'm in their presence, and led and lorded over in this emotion, and then in that motion, and that motion until the heart is no longer united. It said that David had a united heart. It was after God. It was undivided to where the fear of man causes my heart to disintegrate. It causes my heart to go in a million different directions. And so we're always late, and we're, and we're never on time, and we're always apologizing to different people, and we're always acting in different ways, and we feel the stress of it and the fatigue because we are not living out of value. 
we're living out of fear. And we're living out of the discomfort of conflict and not wanting to deal with the pains of the past and not telling people the truth and our yes no longer means yes and our no longer means no. And it doesn't really matter whether or not anybody catches us in not being integral. We know and the Lord knows. And we are no longer one-hearted. We are divided in our heart. This is what the prayer would be, that we would find wholeness and peace through this prayer. Lord, teach me to fear you that I might have a united heart. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Fear of man, people. Conflict, people. Twos on the Enneagram. How y'all doing? How y'all doing? How are y'all doing with telling people the truth? How are you guys doing with telling people the truth? Because the truth will cost you up front, but dishonesty will cost you in the long run. It will cost your sleep. It'll cost your stress. It'll cost your purpose. You'll be a mile wide and an inch deep, and you've got nothing to give anyone because you have no integrity. Teachers need to have integrity. Principals need to have integrity. Coaches need to have integrity. Police officers need to have integrity. If you don't have integrity, what do you have? There is nothing worth worth your integrity. And so therefore, there is nobody worth fearing above God. Rest assured, tonight you can lay your head down on your pillow with absolute peace and joy again, if only you would learn to unite your heart in fearing God. This This is what it is that distracts us. This is what it is that pulls us in a million different directions. Verse 12. Besides, she really is my sister. And I want you to pay attention to how long this answer is. Let me just... Let me just propose this to you. If I ask you a straightforward question like, where were you yesterday or why did you do something that you, know, you shouldn't have been doing? Let me just propose to you that the longer your answer is, probably the less likely it's true. Okay, can I just tell you like, the longer your answer is that you're dancing around, well, I just sort of thought this and then I did this and this. Like, I think the Bible is showing us this run-on sentence maybe just to like, give us a mirror of how long it takes us answers that should just be a yes or a no. Like Jesus says, say yes or say no. Like, did you like that? You know, did you like this Spaghetti, or did you, you know, where are you going to be tomorrow, or can you come to the wedding? Just say yes or say no. And he says, this is, this is where we're going to find integrity, and so much more than that, the fear of the Lord. He says, besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, and not really of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from father's household, I told her, this is how to show your love for me. Everywhere you go, say, she is, he is my brother. I mean, I can't even keep track of the family web and the tree that he's just designed up. And he's like, yeah, he's kind of my sister. And it's like, no, you lied, dude. Like, what's the truth? You lied. You covered yourself. You didn't trust God's promise. It's that simple. So reference, like if you were to be asked a question this next week, maybe calculate how many words did it take you to answer and ask yourself why it took you longer than you needed to. Maybe it's because it's trying to trace a line of authority through too many holes and too many um, places of authority than, other than just King Jesus himself. Jesus says about oaths in Matthew 5, verse 33, again, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Ultimately, we're making vows to him, verse 34. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is uh, God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, for by Jerusalem, for, or by Jerusalem, for uh, it is the city of the great king, and do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. I mean, he's just, he's just, just a communicator, man. I mean, that's just, I swear on my great-grandmother's baby mama's grave that I just swear that I was just, I promise it was so great. It was, it was, it was epic, man. It was just so epic, and it was just a disaster, and like those hyperbolic terms that we need to use nowadays because nobody trusts anybody, and because our yes doesn't mean yes anymore, and our no doesn't mean no. We have to swear by heaven and earth just to say I'm going to Publix. Like, I'm just going to Publix. It's okay. You're going to Publix. Just say no. Just say yes. It will cost you up front, but it'll pay off in the end. My, my friend used to tell me in you know, 
leadership or whatever in, 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 in church stuff, he'd be like, if you have a hard conversation, if you're a two in the Enneagram, just say the hardest thing first, you know? Like, hey, like, this isn't working, and here's why, you know? And then, like, fill it all out. Tell the truth. Say yes. Say no. Like, agree with, with what the Lord has said over your life, and don't continue to make long, exhaustive explanations, I think is what Jesus would say. But lastly, of course, one of the most painstaking things about losing fear of the Lord and taking control and taking matters into your own hands and trying to define and squirrel the narrative down to what you think it should be is we lose our intimacy with God because lacking of fear of the Lord causes blindness. You notice that it's weaved right into his explanation there, verse 13, and when God had made me wander from my father's household, he's forgotten the promises of God. The promises of God have not left him. He is so safe. God has got him. God is still doing great things in his life. The only decision here, the only miss here, is that he's just forgotten that it's happening. So what God would call a calling, Abraham's calling a wandering. God would call it purpose. Abraham's calling it pointless. Like, God is doing something in Abraham's life, and the only one that is losing anything about it is Abraham himself. He can't see what God is doing him despite his nose, like right in front of him. So I just want to close up this time. We are going to take communion um, in a moment. But in the good news of the gospel, for all the three ways, you know, you could lose integrity with God and man and lose intimacy with God and man, the gospel has three things that, in this passage that I see, that cannot be lost, that just cannot be lost. Verse 14, then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham. What is it they say that, like, mercy is not getting what you do deserve and grace is getting what you don't deserve? So Abraham just forfeited the promise. He's put his wife in jeopardy. He has not listened to, to the Lord. He's not feared the Lord. And the day after he realizes his mistake, he's being brought the promises of God right to his doorstep. The cattle and the sheep, the provision, the land, all the things that God has promised him, they're irregardless of, of Abraham's faithfulness. It is always, always, always about God's faithfulness, not Abraham's or ours. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves. The promise is alive. The promise is being fulfilled. It's still moving, not just because of Abraham, but despite him. And the female slaves and everything is being brought to Abraham. And uh, Sarah, his wife, is brought back to him too. In verse 15, and Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you will go. You know, in middle school, we like, we change out our outfits, I think, in some ways to like try on different like Maybe I'll be a jock guy today, or maybe I'll be like a grunge person in, you know, like in third grade or fifth grade or sixth grade. You might like change your outfits in and out to be athletic or Abercrombie or whatever it was but when we were kids. But we're looking for different identities. Here's the thing, though. That like identity is not something to get. Identity is a gift. And so what this passage reminds us in the gospel is that like, no matter what we do or take or leave or who we fear, nothing, nothing can take away who God is making us to be. God has made you to be somebody. Do you know who God made you to be? Do you know who that is? Um, it will oftentimes be contrary to what other people call you. God says, I've named you and I have a name for you. And others will have other names for you. And, and even your own feelings and emotions and pressures and socioeconomic status will begin to try and tell you who you are. But nothing, nothing, nothing can take away who God has made you to be. It's a gift, so you can't lose it. It's a gift that God has given you. It's a grace that God has given you, and you cannot lose it. And so you can change your outfit and change your makeup and change your hair and change your friends, but nothing is taking away who God is making you to be. And so wherever you are, if you've just screwed up for the 55th time and you've just sold out people that you care about and you've just been a coward and not feared God and feared your situation and you have no faith and you have no courage, like fear not, there are things that cannot be lost. And one of those things is who you are in Christ.
You cannot lose that. You cannot change that. And it's waiting for you. It's waiting for me to the day, until the days that we begin to continue to open it and realize it and, and understand it. Verse 16, and Sarah said, I'm giving uh, your, and to Sarah, he says, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. And you are completely vindicated. The shekels of silver are a dowry. It's about how much you would pay. It's a lifetime's worth of wages and it's given um, over to a bride, you know, for, for being married. And so it is God showing that he has used his uh, providence to protect Sarah and has, has not actually jeopardized the promise. God's promise in you and in me and in this age cannot be jeopardized by our actions. This is such good news that nothing can thwart what God is doing for those that are called according to his son in Christ Jesus. And so his plan has never been jeopardized. You are in safe hands. You cannot send yourself into danger. You are exactly where uh, you need to be right now. God is holding you. He is, he is, you know, your faith and your story is being held by his grip and not yours. And that is good news. And so God is, God is protecting you no matter where you are or what you've done. Verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and female slaves so they could have children again. For the Lord um, had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. The last thing that I see is the power of God is irrevocable. There's a place in Corinthians that says that the gifts of God are irrevocable. You'll sit down next to people that can play guitar and sing and they don't know Jesus, but man, can they sing and man, do they understand uh, spiritual tones and things that are going on in our nation and in, in, in our lives. Like, the gifts are irrevocable. It means that the things that God is trying to do through you and the plans that he has for you, those things cannot be lost. If you are a teacher, if you're an evangelist, um, if you are, are a prophet, if you are an apostle, those gifts are chasing you. Those gifts are, are, are following after you. So here's a guy who should be a friend of God. He's not listening. He's supposed to be a prophet, and prophets are also attached to healing. The minute after he has sinned, he is able to have the anointing to heal. The power doesn't come from us. It comes from him. And you can't lose the power. Like you are plugged into a greater source. And so it just totally baffles us. Like we want George Washington to be great. We want him to chop down the cherry tree. We want Lincoln to like fail out of third grade and never make it to be a lawyer and then become the president. We want Michael Jordan to get cut from his, you know, high school basketball team and then make it. Like these are the stories of greatness. And we want to tell ourselves these stories of greatness because we want to be great. But the Bible is continually telling us a cross-countercultural narrative, which is saying you are not great. You just know someone full of grace. And so when you are in your hour of need, may we take great solace and great comfort in the fact that we are not losing our salvation. We cannot lose his faithfulness. We cannot lose his providence and his promise and his power. He is not done working in you yet. And the gift that he has given you cannot be taken away by any human hand. So fear no one but him. Will you awaken it? Will you find it? Will you trust that he is doing it and that it's not something for you to conduce or, 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 or earn or compete for or win? It's already been won. It's already been given. Just something to be trusted and to receive. Isn't that good news to know that it's based on his grip and not ours? It's based on his faithfulness and not ours. This is the gospel. This is what is true of the Old and the New Testament. And so I'll invite the band forward and, uh, and Tom will come forward too to help us um, with communion. But this is how the Bible remembers. This is how the gospel remembers Abraham, not for his failures, but for his faith and the faith that God gave him. Verse 8, by, this is uh, Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would not later receive, it doesn't say he failed or wandered. It doesn't say he floundered. It just says he has faith. He goes into the place of inheritance and obeyed and he went. And even though he did not know where he was going, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. The Bible just makes these heroes, these people that 
are, are really only trophies of grace in the first place. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Why don't we um, stand, and um, I'm going to have Tom to come forward here on the stage with me. If you have your phone, you might take a picture for Citigroup or uh, for a further conversation. The intentional question this morning is, how have you allowed the fear of man to cost you integrity and intimacy with Jesus? Fear of uh, Pharaoh, fear of jealousy, fear of losing my calling, fear of missing out, fear of regret, cannot coexist with the fear of God. And so the prayer becomes, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name because there's freedom in fear of you. There's freedom in having one Lord and Master. There's freedom in in fearing no man because the one who has has called me and and the one who has gifted me um, uh, cannot cannot be um, undermined. And so this is where we put our trust. This is where we put our hope in the fear of God, in the fear, um, in the Lordship of, of Jesus Christ. And so is there a way that potentially you have allowed your heart to be divided within the fear of man instead of the fear of God? Um, let me pray and, and Tom will, will lead us. So thank you, Jesus. Uh, Holy Spirit, for just calming our heart and bringing us strong confidence that does not come from ourselves. We just fling our lives upon you. May we learn early and may we confess often that we are poor without you and that we would fling our lives on you. When it comes to the issues of caring for our neighbors and raising up kids and, and neighboring and building community with our friends, may we fling our life early and often on you, Jesus, and not waste time in self-sufficiency and control. And so, God, unite our hearts to fear your name in this church, in this age, in this time. Unite our hearts to fear your name that we might know.